I wish to welcome everyone to this new episode of my podcast, Trends with a Voice. In this episode, I have the chance to welcome again Pascal Joël Fortin d'Aigle. Just a little refresher uh, Pascal Joël has a business name, Hello Gender, that offers training, workshop to any business organization that want to improve inclusion for trans and non-binary people. So in this episode, we want to talk more about the history of gender identity and trans people. And one of my big goal is to show our listeners that trans people were always there. We were there as soon as humanity started to exist. So we'll dig deeper into that and also we'll talk about what's coming forward for trans people. Yeah, thank you, Audrey, for having me again. It's a pleasure to be back. And yeah, today we'll we'll dive deeper into the uh, trans history. And we have to talk about where we come from in order to understand where we are at now, right? Like, as much as it seems that trans identities are a new thing, the only new thing about it is that we are talking more about trans identities and we are now having more words in order to be able to identify those different identities. And we are swerving away from the binary of only male and female. And that is in itself scary because it has been the norm for so long, but it was not always the case. And that's part of what we're going to touch on today. So as you mentioned, since humanity exists, there has been more than two genders. When we look back and even before Christ, like we are looking at writings and the history that we found, um, there was something that, you know, the, the people that did the research identified as the third sex. So even in the beginning of times, we are acknowledging as a society that there was more than just boy and girl. So what happened? Where in the history of trans and gender did it become only two options? We have to look back at around the 18th century. When you look at biology books and you look at how they were drawing genitalias, the drawings for both male and female were practically identical. And at one point, scientists in the European Union decided to conduct a study, a research, looking at the behavior of women across the world. And One part of that study showed that African women working in the field picking up the crops when they were bending, the conclusion 
of the research was that they were pregnant with a kid. The kid was hitting their nose against their back while they were bending to get the crops. And therefore, the baby was born with a flat nose. So they associated the working woman to a flat-nosed baby. They, as white men, didn't want to have flat nose. So they used that study to basically tell women you have to stop working and your job now in the society is to only be the provider. Like, you will only take care of the kids. That's your sole role in this society. Because before, mind you, there was women that were doctors and that there were doing other like significant work in society. So they used what was dubbed as natural to basically create what we now know as patriarchy. So we can't talk about gender and trans identities without evoking the patriarchy and the feminist aspect of it. The way we view gender now is based in colonialism. When we look at the Crusades and, uh, you know, Jacques Cartier coming into the New World and going to different places in Africa, and they came to those places with their values, the way that they seen the world. And with that baggage came also the fact that for them, the societal norm was that there was only boy and there was only girl. There was the man that was the provider and there was the women that was taking care of the kid at home. And so they arrived at different places in the world and they saw that this was not the norm for them. Because it was not what they were doing, they dubbed that as savage. And so that's where we con the, the term savage is not being civilized, right? It's the opposite of that. So they tried to civilize people by imposing on them the way that they felt, you know, gender should be. It's part of the assimilation that went on. And we forget about the fact that in different tribe in Africa, there's more than one gender. And we forget about First Nation having two-spirit people, which we now know because we are hearing more and more about, you know, the First Nation history and culture. And we're starting to learn that if we look around the world, the notion of gender varies a lot. In fact, there's about 84 Gender marked on a map. It's a Google map. You can like Google it, like map of gender. There's more than 80 different types of gender identified in different parts of the world. Now, why are we only talking about women and men? It's because that's what's vastly known as the societal construct of gender identity. This is a part of it. We're talking about gender. We have to understand where gender comes from. But then with knowing that there is more than one gender, it opens the door to the transgender history, right? And so we want to dive a little bit deeper in that. But before, I just want to make sure that we are all on the same page. And uh, I know Audrey have a lot of information to share as well. And I don't want to just you know, be the, the, the only one talking here. But yeah, so we have to look at gender before even starting to talk about trans history. But yeah. I just want to add a couple of 
example that I know that shows that trans people were always there. First, around like 200 BC, we had a Roman emperor that was trans. There's proof in history books that that person had a female gender expression. Also in the Middle Ages, we had multiple kings in England and France also that were expressing a more feminine gender expression. For example, by wearing like robes, skirts, high heels, makeup. And it was not only the king, but also members of the high society in these kingdom. So it shows that at a moment in history, being non-gender conforming was something that was well viewed. High heels were a sign of high society. The way that we view things has evolved for sure. And it's only like more in the 18 and 1900 that we started really seeing a big oppression against the trans community and non-gender conforming people. You're absolutely right. Let's separate history in half by having pre-Stonewall and post-Stonewall. Because I feel when we talk about trans history, they're like you have to talk about Stonewall. However, there is way more to trans history than just Stonewall. And even behind the Stonewall history, there is more than has been said. We can go back to at least a decade before Stonewall to see the first direct action. In 1959, at Cooper Donut, there was a riot. The gay bars there were banning trans by fear that the police would come because it was illegal in Los Angeles at the time to present with a gender that wasn't the one on your ID. So they started flipping table and throwing their glasses at the police in order for them to be able to just be in that bar. And we fast forward a few years in 1965, kind of the same thing happened in Philadelphia at Dewey's Donut Coffee Shop. The manager was refusing to serve gender non-confirming youth on the basis that it was driving business away. So on April 25th of that same year, 150 people came together and three gender non-confirming youth were arrested And on May 2nd of 1965, we saw in Philadelphia the first instant of what is now called Pride Parade. But they went out in the street picketing for the manager of Dewey's Donut Coffee Shop to stop being discriminatory. And they won. The manager said, okay, everyone is now welcomed in. But it's only a few instances. Now, there's another one in San Francisco where, you know, there was not a whole lot of place for drag queens to perform, to exist. It was all done in the dark. We can think about the drag balls uh, that were full force pre-Stonewall. In Harlem, there was the Black Queer Renaissance, the Hamilton Lodge Balls. Those were some of the largest gatherings of gays and lesbians. And in that, in those venues, you would see drag queens, but in the daylight, you would not see them. However, the Compton's Cafeteria was one of the only places where 
drag queens and trans women could hang out without getting booted. And one night, they tried to arrest a drag queen, which led to a march on the street, you know? And that's one of another first instance of pride. To that, in 2017, San Francisco recognized Kempton's Transgender Cultural District, and it's a world's first. It was the first trans district to be recognized with the event that happened there. But those all led to what we now know as Pride. You know, Pride began as a movement against police brutality, and it was led by BIPOC trans women and drag queens. We often talk about history in a Eurocentric way, you know, the white old men. But it is not the case here. As trans people, we have to fight for our rights, but when you include intersectionality and you're at the bottom of every social interaction, at one point, you're gonna say enough is enough and you're gonna step up. And those women, they all deserve to be named, you know, we know about Marsha Johnson, but there were many others before, like Felicia Flames Elizondo, Tamara Ching, Mary Jones, Lucy Hicks Anderson, Ava Betty Brown, and one trans man, Jim McHarris. They all played a huge role into helping us move forward as a society to be more open and understanding of differences in the gender identity and expression realm. Also, if we come back a little earlier, like you said, in the 1915, we started seeing oppression in New York. But at the start of the 1900s, the drag scene was booming. It was still underground, but it was booming in New York City, like in the 1900s, 1910, 1920s. It's only when the First World War hit that we started seeing more oppression, more change. And in Europe, even earlier in the 1800s, we were seeing a lot of drag artists in bar and cabaret, and that was in public. That was in the public eye. And people were really going there, and the big artists were like well-known. We would see even billboards in London of drag artists. They were celebrities. So it's in the global history, it's a new phenomenon, trans oppression. So it's a new phenomenon because it started with European colonization, but then it's really recently, not more than 100 years ago, that we really started to see the biggest oppression against the trans community. Well, you mentioned World War I, which was a big moment in history, not only because it was World War I, but when we look at it as a gender identity and expression lens, we have to mention all the studies by Dr. Hirschfeld. He had an institute in Germany, Institute of Sex, where he was conducting research on gender identity and expression. He also did um, one of the first ever transition surgery in 1922 was done with Dora Richter. And we can talk also about Lily Elbe, which if you all are not familiar, the Danish girl, the movie is based on Lily's uh, life history. Dr. Hirschfeld had 
a lot of information, but the Nazis burnt down the institute. So all that information that we had about, you know, all the surgeries and all the research and studies that were conducted in the early 1900s were burnt to crisp. So unfortunately, we don't have access to those data anymore. But because Lily and Dora and later on Christine Jorgensen on the North America side were vocal about the fact that they underwent transition surgeries to affirm their gender, these are important information of the history that are not shared. They're not kept secret, but almost because we're not talking about those things, right? Having the Institute in Berlin led to a massive following and liberation of people that felt differently and not in accordance to the body they were given at birth. And having them, Christine and Lily and all those that came with them be vocal about their journey helped move the conversation forward. And we can't forget that. And one thing that Christine said in her book is that each person is actually both in varying degrees. She was talking about men and women. And she said, I am more of a woman than I am a man. It's interesting because she does not deny where she comes from. And it leads me to talk about what I now see as the gender spectrum. See, in that way that Christine said it, it's like you have gender on a line, on a bimodal distribution, with one end being woman and one end being male. For me, I see it more as a spectrum. You know, when we're talking about colors, the spectrum of color, spectrum of gender is the same thing. You fit at some place in there, but every day they discover new colors. I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, like permaviolet was not a color 60 years ago, but it is now. So gender is kind of the same thing. The more we study it, the more we learn about it, the more we are willing to explore it, the more terms we'll be able to con to different variation in degrees of how we feel. It's still taboo to this day to talk about the variation because the oppression of the social construct that was created by those studies in 1800s where men decided to create boxes for male and female, that's what dictates society still nowadays. But we're seeing a movement, we're seeing a change, and with change come challenges, and we are in the midst of the biggest challenge, I think, the trans community has ever faced in modern era. Not to take anything away from the pain and the hardship that the trans people before us went through. I think it's a different type of fight that we're fighting while also being still the same fight for our rights. Just want to be more precise on what you said. Make sure I understand you correctly too. You're not saying that it's harder to be trans now than was in the 60s. What you're saying is the fight we have now is maybe one of the most important fight that we need to have for rights to really 
be able to move forward, to stop fighting the same fights all over again. Yeah, I think you're putting my thoughts in better words here. What I'm trying to convey is we can't take the gain that past trans people got for granted. And right now with all the anti-trans laws and the political climate and everything that's going on, it's just a wake-up call and be like, yo, <laughs> those people fought hard. They deserve to be remembered. Their name deserves to be said. And it's not a but. It's not a if. It's an and. And not E-N-D, like A-N-D. They fought and we still have to fight differently to a certain extent, but very, very similarly in the fact that people don't understand. And now we have reached a moment where there's so much more trans people that are out publicly that it's hard for society to not acknowledge our existence. So being trans is seen now like in the mainstream media. Everyone will meet at least a trans person in their lifetime. That's out publicly. It's impossible to miss us. And I think that's one of the things that really it's hard to comprehend for a lot of people. And society can't turn a blind eye anymore. And that's scary. Exactly. That's scary to a lot of people. So today, we are fortunate to have all the resources that are available to us. Place us in a better place than in the 50s and the 60s, for sure. But the fight is the same. There's some states in the U.S. that they put back laws that were in effect like in the 1950s and 60s. So in the aspect of the law, there's multiple states that went back to these days, literally. So the fight we have right now is the most important one because I truly believe that if we are able to get the silent majority of people to really support us, to be allies, and to see enough is enough. Like, we only want trans people to exist. We're not asking for a million dollars each. We're not asking for our own planet. We're just asking for basic human rights and the resources to be happy in ourselves. And when people will realize that, like, and not listen to all that disinformation going on, and all those politicians that just want to get elected on polarizing issues for people will be in a better place and will be able to move on and stop having these fights again and again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it opens the door to talking more about where we see ourselves in the future. We are in a chaos state right now in so many levels, like, we're going to stick to transgender issues here for the means of the podcast, but like the whole world is in a crisis, like literally. We have seen that repeat itself in history. There's times where there's crisis, you know, world wars. We are basically in a world war right now. It's just no one really wants to acknowledge it. 
But there's war going literally everywhere. Everything looks back to control and power. Because if you are able to categorize people and put them in boxes, male and female, you're able to control them. If you can't put them in boxes and they do what they want, you can't control them. And the fear is that the people in power will lose control over the trans community, right? And with losing power over a certain percentage of society means that they won't be able to do as much of what they want to do. <laughs> like, let's just be blunt here. For me, it's a non-issue. Like, existing shouldn't be an issue. They make it an issue so that you think we are the threat, but really, like, the threat is old white men. We steered a little bit away from history there, so <laughs> try to bring it back, but it's always been about just wanting to be. We just want to be, and it's not a pie that we have to share. We each have a cupcake. I just want my cupcake. That's all. I want my cupcake with a little bit sprinkle. We talked like a bit about like the trans history in the US. In Canada, like if we talk about the law that were enacted to protect our rights, it's pretty recent. Gender identity was just added to the Charter of Rights of Canada in 2017. Same thing in New Brunswick. It was on the same year. So we talked six years ago. That's really recent. Like, that's, that's baby. Yeah, exactly. Like, if we talk about gender-affirming surgery, they were only, like, offered for free in New Brunswick, like, since around, I think, 2012? Like, it's not more than 10 years ago. And if we talk about name change, like or even like gender markers, there's a lot of places where we cannot even put an X marker yet. And then if we go really like weeks ago, we saw Saskatchewan enact a policy using the non-withstanding clause. So what it does, it ignores the fact that gender identity is in the Charter of Rights of Canada. So we're going back. Mm -hmm. We're going backwards all because of fear. And there is a lot of education needed to happen. I mean, the podcast is a great way to convey information. That's the reason why I'm doing the work I'm doing with Hello Gender. I love talking about history. But we have to look at what's going on right now, what's happening in this day and age. The history is there to help us understand where we come from. And I can't talk about where we are now and where we're going without at least mentioning a bit of where we come from. And I hope that what we shared today was enough to give a more round portrait of gender identity and expression and how it evolved through the years and across the earth and why it is the way it is now and why we are fighting the fights we are fighting now. It is also important to understand that you name multiple trans people that were like 
at the beginning of the trans movement. For each of these people, there's a lot of trans people that were not out, that were in the closet, and it's important to not forget that. So when we say that someone was one of the first to have gender-affirming surgery, that's what we know publicly. There might be a, a bunch of trans people that had a surgery before, but it was not disclosed in public because of the fear of reprisal of families or government, just everyone. <laughs> yeah, just literally anything. It's even us, like when, I don't know, in a hundred some years from now, they'll look back in audio files and they'll stumble upon, historian will stumble upon Audrey Gionnet's Trans with a Voice podcast and they'll analyze where we are with the state of the world and how the progress has been made. Basically doing the same thing that we're doing with other information that we have from previous years. I hope that they'll see a positive change, that we went in the right direction as a society, as community, and we are able to just be who we are. Society can do anything to, I would say, like, do oppression, like, not allowing us to live, but we will be always there. Nothing can stop someone of having a certain identity. Mm -hmm. You just are who you are. Exactly. So you said earlier, like, what you wish to see, like, when in 100 years from now, when people listen back to our podcast on whatever device they're using, probably neural implants, maybe. <laughs> I hope that person that listened to that podcast sees that we made a lot of progress in the last 100 years. And I'm hopeful. It can be difficult to be optimistic in the transphobic climate we are living right now. But I really feel that we are, like you said, in a turning point in the fight for trans right. We reach a point that we are everywhere, like in mainstream media, we are present, people see us. I think it's just a question of the silent majority has a lot of catching up to do on what trans is because the technique we use to get more rights was working in the shadows. Like, I would say, a comic analogy like Batman is working the shadows. Yeah. It's the same thing when you think about it because we were able to get rights, get our rights protected in the Charter of Rights. We were able to get Policy 713 in New Brunswick written into law by the conservative government. Let's not forget. It was signed off by the same government that removed the most important part of the policy. So people need to remember that one of the easiest ways to get changes done in any organization, in any society, is working the shadows. So this way, especially when you have measures that affect a minority of people, like trans community, in the overall picture, will always be a couple of percent. will never be 50% of society. I don't know, is it 3, 5, 10%? I'm not sure. At least 3, 5%, I think. That would be my guess, at least. So, 
when you do measures for a minority group, it, you're able to do that in the shadows. And because it's not something that has impact on a lot of people, I'll just be precise a little bit. What I want to say here is, yes, like being more inclusive on gender identity is better for everyone when we talk about like bathroom, for example, like having hygienic uh, material and accessible to everyone, like maybe changing table, not just in the woman bathroom, because men have men are parents too and need to change diapers too. That's not a woman's job, it's everyone's job. And we talk also about like discrimination in the workplace and removing those gender barriers are better for everyone. So if I come back to what I was saying, like these measures are life-saving for a minority of people that represent the trans community, but they help everyone at the end. So in the 2010, the 2000, we got a lot of rights working the shadows, but now we cannot be in the shadows anymore. That's never going to happen again. We are here. People see us now. People come out publicly like we have never seen in history. And that is so empowering seeing even with all the transphobia we face, people don't stop coming out in public. So we are at a point that we need to take a stand to get that support from the silent majority to be able now to move forward and stop fighting the same fight all over again. So I think we did a pretty nice like journey through history and also bringing more of present day realities also to into the picture. So do you have anything to add before we end the podcast? I think the one thing I would like the listeners to remember is that the fight for trans rights, fight for 2SLGBTQAI plus rights were led mostly by trans people of color. However, the rights were given to the white middle class. So they always have to push more. And I want to recognize the effort and the presence of the BIPOC community because they have it even harder being into different intersectionality. They fought for us and we have to fight for them as well. We're fighting the same fight to a certain degree. And so, yeah, we, we just got to remember that. Yeah, I just want to add on that is trans people of color have it a lot harder than white trans people. It's a fact that our society has been Eurocentric all these years since colonization. And if we look everywhere, like in North America, trans women, trans feminine people of color are the most vulnerable people in the society. They have a lot more hurdles that as a white trans woman don't have. And I cannot imagine what it feels being in that situation. So yes, as trans person, 
we live discrimination, we live like oppression, but not at the extent that people of color does. So it's important to support them in their fight because when a minority fight for their right, it's a common fight with other minorities. We just want to be recognized and exist and be ourselves. So we've reached the end of this podcast. So I just want you to tell us how can people reach you and learn more about you. Yeah, so you can find Hello Gender pretty much everywhere on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We also have a website, hellogender.ca, and you can reach me directly as well, Pascal Joel. It was a pleasure to be here again, Audrey. Thank you for the invite, and I look forward to our next adventure together. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be many more adventures. So a big thank you. We'll put in the show notes uh, your contact info so people can reach you. And I wish you also good continuation in your many ongoing projects. Thank you, Audrey. Finally, I invite you to subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and to follow Trends with a Voice on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget that a society that is more inclusive to the transgender community is better for everyone. Thanks and see you next time.